On September 19, 1931, residents of Harrison County, West Virginia, mobbed the county jail in Clarksburg. They were demanding justice and fast. The confessed murderer, Harry Powers, had just admitted to the horrific murders of two women and three children on his farm outside of Clarksburg in the small community of Quiet Dell. It caused local and even national uproar. None of these community members had heard or experienced the nature of a serial killer. Serial killers. We've looked at sinister killings perpetrated by them many times before. Crime in the coal fields is no stranger to serial killings in the Mountain State. From the Mad Butcher all the way to James Childers, West Virginia has seen its share of serial killers. They aren't altogether common in our area, though, and this week we're looking further back than we have before in a murder case like this. Tonight's episode may just focus on one of the first people in modern history to be labeled a serial killer in the United States. On the morning of March 18, 1932, the convicted killer, Harry Powers, hung for the crimes he committed and perhaps many no one knew he did. A traveling salesman based here in West Virginia, Powers used marriage correspondence agencies to ensnare lonely women who he robbed, then murdered. Police estimated that before his arrest in 1931, he killed around 50 victims. Some people believe the number to be far-fetched, but no one knows the true number of victims who Harry Powers claimed. Essentially, Harry Powers used local advertisements and false personas to catch unsuspecting people, which we in modern society are no strangers to ourselves. The world that Harry Powers committed his murders in might have been a different world than the one we live in today, but his monstrous tactics are just as effective. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of Crime in the Coalfields. I'm Izzy Post. And I'm Harper Imsch. Crime in the Coalfields is a podcast brought to you by 59 News that explores the crimes, killers, cryptids, and notorious cold cases of the Mountain State and beyond. Tonight, Crime in the Coalfields discusses the details of a series of grisly murders all perpetrated by Harry Powers, West Virginia's first serial killer, and one of the United States' first, too. Listen as we delve into the life that this case has taken in history, as well as what happened to discover and bring justice to these crimes. Harry Powers was born Herman Drenth in the Netherlands in 1892. In 1910, at the age of 18, he emigrated with his family to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Fourteen years later, at age 32, and allegedly after having lived once again overseas, he moved to Quietdell, near Clarksburg, West Virginia, under the name Powers. Once he was living here in West Virginia, he began to assume the character of an Oklahoma oil stock promoter, the first of several aliases he adopted over time. A year later, after responding to her advertisement in Lonely Hearts magazine, he married Luella Strother who owned a farm and a grocery store nearby. We talk about this a lot in missing persons cases, and that is the idea of a blank slate. Yeah. A new identity, a new persona. You move somewhere where no one knows who you are, and you can be 
anyone you want to be. And that's exactly what we see here. Yeah, Harry Powers is, for all intents and purposes, a person we know very, very little about. You know, we know his vague family history, but we don't know exactly what happened between his birth as Herman Drenth in the Netherlands. So 1892, and then 1910, we know what happened. He came to the States. And then there's 14 more years. And so we don't really know his first 18 years of life what happened. We talk about a lot with serial killers with many of our cases, regardless of, of whether they even involve murder, about trauma. We don't know what his childhood was like. And then we know that he moved to the United States. And then there's a 14-year period where we don't know who he was then at all. And then he shows up here in West Virginia under this caricature. You have to remember, too, 1892 born, 1910 moves to the U.S. You're kind of right in the throes. It's a little beforehand, but right in the throes of pre-World War One. So yeah. Europe was a very tense place at that time. Yes. And it, it also is interesting because he moves here and he moved to Iowa. And somehow between in those 14 years we don't have, he went from Iowa here to West Virginia. And that's, that's a bit of a hike. So that's also something to keep in mind. But the biggest thing to note is that he married this woman, Luella Strother. And Luella Strother somehow managed to avoid Harry Powers' murderous actions. You see, we're going to talk about what he's done. And at the end of all of this, she was his wife for, for most of this time, this later time that we'll talk about. And she lived long after him. And she had no knowledge of any of the, these things that, that Harry Powers did. She would later go on to denounce her former husband as a monster who she would not have freed, quote, for $100 million. $100 million back in that day, too. Harry Powers is known for certain to have killed five people, Asta Eicher and her three children, as well as Dorothy Lemke. Using the name Cornelius O. Pearson, he began writing to Asta Eicher, a widowed mother of three who lived in Park Ridge, Illinois, a Chicago suburb. His trap set, he went to visit Eicher in June. During that time, the couple left on a romantic interlude while her children, Greta, Harry, and Annabelle, remained behind with Elizabeth Abernathy, a babysitter. Several days later, Abernathy received a letter from Iker that indicated Pearson would be back to pick up the children. Soon afterward, he and one of the children, Harry, were briefly seen at Park Ridge Bank, where the youth had been sent to withdraw a check on the Iker account. Suspicious tellers declined the transaction, after which Pearson and the children fled. Sometime after that exchange, Powers sent letters to Dorothy Limke of Northborough, Massachusetts, and he persuaded her to move in with him in Iowa, where he still claimed to live. He convinced her to withdraw $4,000 from her bank, and throughout this whole process, she did not notice that Powers had asked her to send her trunks to Fairmont, West Virginia, in the care of one Cornelius O. Pearson. Meanwhile, police in Illinois began to investigate the disappearance of Iker and her children. They inquired into her last known contact, Cornelius O. Pearson of Clarksburg. 
Police in Illinois and West Virginia soon realized no one named Cornelius Pearson lived in Clarksburg. However, the description matched that of grocer Harry Powers, who they finally arrested as a suspect. Harrison County Sheriff Wilford Grimm obtained the search warrant, after which the horrors carried out in Quiet Dell quickly began to unfold. Powers eventually confessed to the murders of the family, and he then led the police to his small garage, which he had built on his property during the course of these crimes with his wife Luella's money. Grimm and his deputies found four rooms hidden beneath Powers' new garage. In the shadows within the subterranean chambers of this so-called garage, they found the small bloody footprint of a child, a burned bank book, and blood-soaked hair and clothing. A crowd gathered as police began to dig into a new-made ditch behind the house. There, the bodies of five victims were found rotting. Evidence and autopsy results showed the two girls and their mother were strangled to death, while the young boy's head was beaten with a hammer. Lemke was the final victim to be uncovered. She also was strangled, with the belt used still wrapped around her neck. The crime, as you could imagine, shocked the local community. The gruesome nature of the murders even brought national attention to this story. Media from across the country traveled to Clarksburg for the trial, from places like Iowa and Illinois and and some of these places that were involved with the murders. The proceedings were held at Moore's Opera House in Clarksburg to accommodate the large crowds who wanted to attend, and because the new Harrison County Courthouse was under construction at the time. On December 12, 1931, Powers was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. His sentence was carried out at State Penitentiary on March 18th of 1932. And these crowds that are mentioned both when the police were exhuming the bodies from the makeshift burial site, the, the new burial site, and the crowds that gathered at the Opera House trial, I just want to kind of tell you Izzy a little bit and, and and you the audience about there was this and I read a lot of newspaper clippings about the gravity of this case and we mentioned it at the very beginning people especially locals were mobbing they were clamoring they were like at the doors of the jail there were several accounts of the law enforcement who were overseeing Harry Powers had to kind of covertly move him between places when he needed moved. And there were points where Harry Powers was was quoted to have said, just just let him have me, that sort of sort of thing. Because they so wanted justice for the gruesome nature of, of what happened. And that's what I was gonna say. What's got me hung up is the four rooms under this newly constructed garage. Now again, it's nineteen thirty one There are automobiles at the time. There is some forms of technology that are starting. We're really in the height of the industrial era at this time, in the the 20s and 30s. But we don't have the medical advances that we had, say, in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, autopsies can only take you so far. You know, eyeing over a victim can only take you so far. We don't have the technology for crime scene investigation like we do now. And we say this a lot in this story, but the fact that there were five gruesome murders, bloody footprints, hair with blood in it. And these people killed this way. 
I almost wonder if he did stuff to them before he killed them. Y- yes. I, I think that the general consensus is these were torture rooms, as more or less, to, to be quite frank, is, yeah, he had four rooms in a garage constructed. Like, if you're just going to kill and dump bodies, which many serial killers do, uh, that's not the sort of M.O. This is the M.O. of somebody who, who, who kidnaps people and takes them, and he took their money, too. That was a big thing, and it was theorized that he, he did prey on other women this way, and that a big part of it was getting money for free, but there was clearly violent intent there, too. Um, you know, yeah, you don't find bloody footprints, blood and hair and, and, and burned things. You don't find that in just normal disposal of like a body. And, and the way these people died, too, is not a quick death. No. Strangulation, you know, hammers and heads. Um, it, it's a gruesome way to die. Yeah. But there were some other things that were also found throughout this investigation, including love letters found in the trunk of Powers' car. He had written back to many women with the intention of stealing their money and killing them, just as with the victims that were found on his property. We found in online archives an example of the letters that Harry Powers used to ensnare his victims. This letter was found written in his own handwriting during the investigation of the case. In it, he announces himself, quote, longing for someone to take my former wife's place in my heart, quote, and promises also that his new wife quote, can have anything within reason that money can buy. The letter begins this way, quote, my age is blank, height 67 inches, have clear blue eyes, medium dark hair, end quote. So hearing some of this written in the letters that, that he was giving out to these women on through these advertisements and these newspaper things, Powers evidently had used this letter as a model for writing to various women, with no doubt adjusting his age to fit the year of writing or the age of the woman he's writing to, things like that. You can tell because the place where I say my former wife's and the blank, like those were actually blank segments, so he switched the story out depending on who he was talking to. And that's just, it's crazy to see something like that. I'm chuckling right now because Harry Powers is the first online dating scammer. Yeah, more or less. And that's something worth talking about is is this letter, and that's why I included it, it, it reads like a phishing scam. If you've gotten one of those, which I'm sure almost all of us have, everybody's carrying a phone, has an email, you get these emails from people claiming to be things, and, and you can tell that they are template with things kind of put in and edited in and stuff like that and that's exactly what he did he had like a template letter that he was like well i can i can this is the this is the good copy i can fool all these women with this by just putting some extra details in filling out like a mad lib almost even further than that i have a friend who is on the dating scene currently and they matched with so-and-so on one site and matched with so-and-so on another site and we put two and two together, same message with a couple of things changed out. It was the same person posing to be two different people. I mean, this is very textbook and and, and love is a powerful thing. Love is a powerful drug. Love is a powerful feeling. Love is a powerful force. The tool. It, it is. And it can be used to do extreme good, but it can also be used to do extreme evil. And, yeah. and this is a very good example of that. Yeah, and we, we chuckle at, at, at kind of the, the idea of this because in, in a way it is, it, it is humorous. It's darkly humorous. But if you just think a few steps ahead, it's also very telling. It tells us something about 
modern times, like we can look at this case and use it as a, a guide for today because there's still human trafficking going on. There are still killers and, and, and awful to say it, but there are still serial killers that do hide very well in today's modern world. And it is incredibly easy to meet anyone just in the snap of a finger like that and to tell them whatever fabricated story you want. It could be true. It could be based on segments of truth, but it could as easily just be a template filled in and people could prey on you using this exact, it, it's the same method that he used then, just applied now. 90 you know? years later. Yeah, 90, 90 years, years later. Another similarity that people drew of this case during the time it happened was the folktale character Bluebeard, who was a nobleman that murdered each of his wives. In fact, an excerpt from the Camden Courier Post on March 19, 1932 reads, and I quote, The modern Bluebeard showed no emotion as he went to his death, a twitching of the lips, a simple twist of his head, a quietly pronounced no answering the question whether he desired to say anything before he passed into eternity. These were the only incidents as he stood high up on the platform of the gallows, waiting to drop, end quote. He confessed to killing only those five whose bodies were found buried next to his murder garage, wherein he bound and gagged his victims and watched in delight as they died. The pleasure of the sight, said Powers, beat any cat house I was ever in. This barbarity that he displayed throughout the entirety of these killings has inspired books, movies, and even podcasts. The 1953 novel Night of the Hunter, which took place in the nearby Ohio Valley, and the 1955 film of the same name, starring Shelley Winters and Robert Mitchum, were based on the Powers tale. As recently as 2013 even, Jane Ann Phillips in her novel Quiet Dell re-examined the case anew. And so there's a lot of, a lot of history to this case. It's pretty well known widely and in northern West Virginia. I hadn't heard of it myself before kind of delving in and doing some of the research but it's really interesting to hear how easily he used and, and subverted expectations is what i really want to say he really subverted expectations because you can only imagine that these poor you know widowed women were just looking like you said looking for for genuine connection uh, and they didn't get that no, in fact, they got very far from that, which is scary. But I really want to go back to the murder garage and saying the pleasure of watching his victims as they died a slow death. I mean, that coincides with the whole torture chamber. And it, and it makes you think of other serial killers. You know, you think of people like Jeffrey Dahmer who talk about that. And, and they talk about watching their, their victims and, and that craving that they have for whatever dopamine release that killing brings in their brains you know this again we go back to the psychology conversation you and i have had about this before on the podcast it's just he's another one where he's openly talking about the psychology aspect and what killing does to him Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Crime in the Coalfields. If you like Crime in the Coalfields, be sure to give us a good rating wherever you listen and recommend it to any friends or fans of true crime that you know. 
feel free to send us in any suggestions or requests for future episodes. We'll do the research and we'll feature whatever cases that you send our way. Interact with us on Spotify or wherever you're listening to reach us the fastest. This episode has been an exclusive podcast experience presented by 59 News. This episode of Crime in the Coalfields was written, hosted, and produced by Izzy Post and Harper Emsch.